Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 38 for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 12, Through the Valley of Shadows. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney, and joining me is, as always... Hi, it's Sabriel Mastin. Let's do this. Yeah, and this week we are rounding out our command crew with Commander Jessica Janik. Hello. Hello, Jessica. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being had. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jessica, what is your history with Star Trek? What brings you to our show today? Well, um, I like to put it as Star Trek is my first love. I fell in love with Star Trek when I was in grade school, probably second or third grade, which tells you a little bit about my age in that that's when Star Trek The Next Generation was airing. I fell in love with it then. I watched every episode. Then when it was on reruns, I watched all the reruns. I started going to conventions like around age nine or 10, um, got to meet Mr. George Decay and a few other really cool people at that age. Um, and it's really shaped my life. Uh, I pretty much love every iteration of Star Trek, even the animated series. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really can't describe it more than that. I, I love it. Now, you and I met at PAX East, where we had a brief discussion about maybe Voyager not quite hitting home for you. That's actually very correct. So um, I started watching Voyager uh, when it was on the air and then got to about season four. And then something about it stopped me from watching it. And since then, I have gone back and I am now rewatching it. And I'm feeling the same thing as I watch through Voyager now. And I, I don't know if it's that... Um, the characters just don't speak to me as much as some of the other series, or if it's like the whole uh, Kate Mulgrew, Jerry Ryan drama that's coloring my experience of it and like knowing that and it's like changing how I view these scenes and it's really hard to pull myself out of that. So I don't know if it's that or if it's just that I don't, I'm not like connected to it as much. Bree, were you aware of that behind the scenes rivalry between Mulgrew and Ryan? Because I was not. At the airtime, no. But since then, oh yeah, uh, it's a pretty big thing to a lot of Voyager fans. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate that Kate Mulgrew and uh, Jerry Ryan don't get along. Uh, you know, the, the short version of it is uh, Kate Mulgrew kind of felt like this young this young gal uh, was just kind of thrust upon her. <laughs> I was like, you have to work with her. She's getting a big role in your show. And uh, have fun. Yeah, I, I think to add to that, uh, I think she maybe perceived that Jerry Ryan was brought on for just like eye candy sex appeal. And like, I think she resented that. So I think the unfortunate thing is like in that situation, uh, I personally would view it as unprofessional to treat the actress that way. Not that I act at all, but um, I think she should have taken out her ire on the producers because it's really their decision that this character was added and Jerry Ryan just came in to do a job. So I think it's just unfortunate that that that's how it was handled. Yeah. If that's how it played out, then I would certainly agree that was unprofessional. So if Voyager is not your favorite Star Trek series, which is? That's a tough question. Um, I obviously grew up with TNG. So for, for me, that's probably where my heart is, but I love deep space nine. I've rewatched that one a few times. 
I just, I like the story arc. I mean, obviously that was the first series that included actual like full on story arcs as opposed to like the episodic nature of most of TNG, but you know, TNG, it was my first uh, experience and, and my first love. So it's my heart is probably there, but I think deep space nine and now I'm loving discovery quite a bit. So it's, it's a, it's quite a toss up, I guess right now, but I'm going to go with deep space nine for now. Awesome. So why don't we talk about Discovery while we're at it? Sounds great. (laughs) So this latest episode was, as I mentioned, Through the Valley of Shadows, Season 2, Episode 12. I'll try to give a brief TLDR, and that is that we have a fourth red signal in the sky, despite Dr. Burnham having lost her time crystal and not appearing in this episode as the Red Angel. And so they decide to split the party. You never split the party, but here we go. Burnham and Spock go after a Section 31 ship that has reported late, and they find that concerning. They think it might be a indication that there is some sort of a control presence there. So they go to the ship. They find the entire crew has been ejected into space. One of them is still alive. He's somebody from the Shenzhou who Burnham knew. So they go on to the dead ship and the ship comes to life, starts warping them somewhere, basically kidnapping them. The guy that they found, Gant, turns out to actually be control and he tries to assimilate Burnham and Spock stops them. And they all go, uh, Spock and Burnham go back to Discovery together. Yay. Meanwhile, that pulse signal in the sky appeared over the planet Boreth, the Klingon world, where Ash Tyler's son is. And so Laurel shows up and says, you shouldn't go down there. And so Pike says, I will. And he goes down and meets the son of Laurel and Tyler, who is now all grown up because time crystals are what are kept on Boreth and Pike wants to get one and it manipulates time all around them. It's really strange. He grabs a crystal, sees his future, which we know from the cage slash the menagerie is told. If you take the crystal, you'll be locked into that fate. He says, sure. So he grabs the crystal. Everybody reunites on discovery and they detect 30 inbound section 31 ships coming for them. And so they decide the only way to destroy the sphere data is to destroy the entire freaking ship. The end. Did I miss anything? Sounds about right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Get rid of the new ones. Yep. (laughs) So which plot shall we discuss first? Spock and Burnham? Let's go Spock and Burnham first, because the Pike one. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, agree. So, Bree, take it away. Well, okay, so Spock and Burnham, I actually thought um, there's a very quick scene at the very beginning of the episode I thought was really sweet. We actually get to see the third of Michael's mother figures in here, and she's on a call with Amanda. And I thought it was just... uh, she's like, I'm sorry about what happened. Then Spock comes in. He's like, oh, you're on the phone with mom. And at that moment, uh, basically, Amanda says uh, she loves them both. And it's a quick little touching scene. I just really enjoyed that. Yeah, last week we saw George Yu and Dr. Burnham vying for Michael's attention. And we all sort of forgot, wait a minute, what about the woman who actually raised Michael? Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, I found that, that uh, the whole scene with Spock that whole touching moment really was like the first time you see Amanda and, and, and uh, Michael all as like a family and it felt very warm to me and I just really enjoyed it. We got to see another angle of that family when Spock and Burnham went to board the shuttlecraft and Burnham was like, I really don't need your help brother. And she said, and he says, shall we sister? <laughs> and I love that. I love that Spock just turned right around and threw that back at her, especially when just a few episodes ago, we saw him saying, she's my sister, not by blood. Like he was really enforcing the idea that they were barely related, if at all. And now he seems to be embracing that. 
He seems very sensitive, uh, like now compared to the the character we saw earlier, where he was like feeling, uh, I guess, some joy in expressing anger, and now he feels like um, like he's fully embraced this uh, this family that uh, I think has been plaguing his existence since childhood. It, it's like he's seeing his uh, his sister in a whole new light, and it's really really nice to see Spock being so like a touching character and, and an embracing character. It's a different version, I think, of Spock than we really see in any other of the iterations of his character in any series or movie. Uh, yeah, up until like his older years, and then he starts letting it loose again. I th- I, I've always found that Star Trek is really cool when they get Vulcans. We actually get to see Vulcans do express emotions just in their own little way. I've always enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah, we've rarely seen Spock be affectionate. In the 2009 movie, we saw him get very angry and almost kill Kirk. And in the Star Trek Into Darkness, we saw him enraged when Kirk supposedly died. And that was only he was only angry because he did care for Kirk so much. But there was a scene in TOS where he thought Kirk had died when Kirk supposedly came back to life. Like, he was happy. He smiled. He's like, Jim, you're alive. And we rarely get to see that side of Spock. So it was nice to see just an inkling of it here in Discovery. It kind of reminds me of, I think, was it the, it's either the 2009 Star Trek where Sarek uh, explains to Spock why he married Amanda and says that he loved her. It, it's one of those kinds of moments, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason that Michael and Spock were getting on the shuttlecraft is because they found out a Section 31 ship hadn't reported in, and Michael wanted to go scope it out. Well, there's this great scene with Saru. It sets this up, this family thing up, where she asked for permission to go, and Saru's like, yeah, no problem. Uh, Go for it. Do the thing. And uh, she's like, that's weird. I didn't have to convince you. And he's like, I guess it's all part of the changes. And then uh, it cuts away, and she's getting on the shuttle. And Spock comes on here and says, Saru, order me to go. So I got a kick out of this. Saru basically said, oh, yeah, Michael can go, but I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to let Sp- Spock go with you. And kind of held that back. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, at first I thought Spock might be lying, that he was just making that up as a way to go with his sister, because we never, as you said, saw Saru give that command. Yeah, I really liked uh, that that line that Saru says, like, I'm a different uh, captain now. I'm a different acting captain now. I don't remember what the exact line was, but it was something like that. And it was just like... Yeah, I really like you now, Saru. I mean, I liked him the whole time, but like, <laughs> I, I like this new character uh, as he's grown throughout this this uh, this season. Uh, I thought that showed a lot about his growth. Yeah, and it, this is something that he does need to grow into because immediately after he lost his threat ganglia, he was very confrontational with Pike and not in a positive way. As surely that was a form of confidence, but here we express we see it expressing itself in a more constructive manner. I think we should also talk about how like we've been expressing this whole familial sense and Saru has also expressed that Michael is family. So in a sense, Saru is also a parental or at least a sibling like figure. So this whole thing is like a, a family story for Michael. That's a really good way to put it. Would that make Amanda Saru's like step grand aunt? <laughs> getting very confused. Yeah, I don't know. Um, 
It's fathers, nephews, brothers, former roommate. Um, what does that make? What us? does that make Saru? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Love <laughs> it. I think we're getting into different fandoms here. Um, this is fine. We're all the same family. That works. <laughs> anyway, <yeah. laughs> so, shall we move on to when they actually arrive at the Section Thirty One ship? Yeah, what yeah. happened? Yeah, I love how any time a ship comes out of warp, they come out right in front of debris that can immediately hit them. The first thing yeah, I thought like, of was Star Trek 2009. <laughs> yeah, yes, same. Uh, it's like, can your sensors not detect this and like alert them? Uh, I suppose they're traveling at high speeds and like the 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 moments between hitting stop and uh, hitting that debris are like microseconds i'm sure but uh still like you'd think that they would have some sort of alarm like hey there's debris where you're about to exit warp well star trek sensors always work on the speed of plot so you can always tell someone's <laughs> coming exactly. unless the plot needs you to not know they're coming maybe they were traveling at ludicrous speed <laughs> indeed or they've gone to plaid perhaps oh no by the way, I did love the scene where the shuttle actually took off from Discovery. The, the yes. angle and the way it followed the shuttle and how it immediately went to warp. We don't usually see that perspective. I've also uh, I've, I've, I've thought about this every time we see shuttles. There's there's no like bay doors on Discovery. We brought that up before. And it's a common problem or common um, thing people yell about Star Trek Discovery on Reddit. Like close the shuttle bay doors. <laughs> I actually like it. I think it's an interesting uh, change. And, and I'm wondering when in the like future history they decide that bay doors are important. Because the Enterprise obviously is going to have them. But like sometime between Discovery being built and the... I don't know. I, that, that's just an interesting uh, thing that passes through my head every time I see it. If you kind of expand on that further, it, it kind of shows that at least when Discovery's era, you, have, you often use shuttles uh, so much in your research and investigating things that you just leave the door open all the time. They're a crucial part of your ship's analysis of whatever mission you're on. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting perspective. Um, and maybe, maybe it's um, like that on military craft present day. I have no idea. Uh, that'd be interesting to, to, to see how they thought through that in the uh, process of building this ship out. But if they decide they don't need that wall in that room of Discovery, how long before they just expand the concept to the entire ship? And they're like, you know what? We don't need walls. Let's just use force fields and have an invisible ship like Wonder Woman. Well, see, they seem to try that with the Section 31 uh, ship. That didn't work out too well. Did they? Oh, no, I mean, I'm extrapolating. Uh, oh, I see. Doors, apparently. <laughs> I think that would be a hilarious visual. You just see a ship full of people standing in space, zipping around. Like, mm -hmm. no, 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 we don't need walls. Where we're going, we don't need walls. All I can think of is like the uh, the bathrooms. Like that would be really <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> Which we never see anyway. Or like, or like, uh, you have to go in for your physical now. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so back to the Section Thirty One ship. When they recovered, was it, his name was Gant, right? Mm -hmm. Because I thought Gant was Ensign Mayweather's ex-girlfriend on Enterprise, but maybe I'm misremembering. It could have been as well. Did anybody here remember Gant from the Shenzhou? Honestly, I thought it was the dude from the beginning of the season where who died in the uh, in the debris field when they were going towards the uh, um, Hiawatha. Oh yeah, Enterprise's chief science officer. Sure. Yeah, I was so confused for a minute. I was like, wait, him? And then it had the flashbacks. Like, oh, okay, I'll take your word for it. I forgot. I only remembered this character upon them showing the flashback. And even then I was like, oh, I guess he was there. Um, okay. And the only reason I knew it was a flashback was because of Burnham's haircut. <laughs> I mean, Discovery Season 1 was really bad about telling who any of the other characters other than the main three were. 
So uh, I don't think it's a problem that we forgot. Agree. Did any, was anybody else here suspicious of Gant like as soon as they revived him? Yes. I wasn't. I wasn't this time. Yes, absolutely was. I was like, I know exactly where this is going. And I was right. Yeah, me too. And I thought that they would have scanned him and detected the nanites, but they just said how he was like masking their tricorder scan, which seems a pretty neat trick that apparently even the Borg haven't mastered. Yeah, uh, it just like immediately was like, oh, wait, there's people out in space and they're still alive. And they didn't check to see like how long they've been out in space and maybe correlate that with how long a human should be able to survive in space, given that they're wearing an environmental suit, like all of that stuff like was passing through my head, but I guess they're in like a state of like, Oh my God, there's a, there's a life form here. Let's beam it aboard. And like the, the, the standard like panic mode or, or like maybe they weren't thinking through all of their normal tactics about figuring that out. But that was my first thought. I was almost suspect the transporter would be like, Hey, there's some non-human material here. Uh, I mean, it can tell germs and whatever like that. It makes people so they can't get sick when they beam around. Maybe the the whole like biofilter stuff isn't yet available. Maybe that's future transporter tech that isn't available until like after TOS. Yeah, and I'm guessing the internal ship scan on the Section 31 ship that detected the nanites, that is again advanced Section 31 technology that was not available on the Discovery shuttle. Yeah, possibly. I'm also sure that the reason that Gant, of all people, was alive is that Control chose somebody that Burnham would recognize. That seems logical. Yeah. Totally plausible. Let's talk about what happens once they actually get on the ship. Okay, so so they get on the ship and they're like, we need to confine the ship into, or the, the control, into one little sub-thing in, in the computer and block it off. Stuff that isn't how programming actually works or computer AI works, but hey, cool. But um, uh, I thought it was weird. Like when, when Spock is in another room, he's in a control room programming some stuff really quick. He, the computer does some reports back to him. And my first thought is, don't trust anything the computer says to you. Like, the computer says, everything's safe. You're fine. I'm like, no, <laughs> don't believe it. And I'm like, again, don't divide the party. <laughs> right. I mean, this is like a double split now. This is ridiculous. Uh, I was surprised that they were audibly conferring about their plan with the assumption that the ship itself wasn't listening to them. Yeah, that seemed like an unwise course of action, and especially so for two people who are very uh, surrounded with their lives in logic. You'd think that they would think of that. And I also don't understand their plan in the first place. Like, uh, It seems to go back to the idea that data can be moved but not copied. Like, if they create a false startup system, you would think that control would infect that startup system without leaving the areas it's already infected. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing there, I was just like, I'm an engineer. I get this. Like it's dumb. Like this whole plan doesn't make any sense. It's purely a plot device. And uh, I mean, whatever. They did it on Deep Space Nine too. Uh, one of the first episodes. It was the, the puppy they did like some some um, baby AI or some baby AI form was infecting the computer, and eventually Miles O'Brien just locks it away inside a its own room on the hard drive of the station. Yeah, like a subroutine of some kind. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure because that's totally how how code works. Right. <laughs> so all they need to do is pull up disk utility and partition the hard drive. Day saved. <laughs> 
Wow. But of course, that partition would have to be removed from access to the system because uh, if it's still like loaded as a drive, it can still move about the machine. They'll just reformat to something that the native operating system doesn't understand. Or something, something, something SQL. <laughs> which they still use in the future, as we've discussed, which is ridiculous. Oh my gosh. So eventually their plan kind of works. I guess control allowed itself to be pulled into the false startup system to lure them into a false sense of security because that is when Gantt reveals himself as control and fisticuffs ensue. Many fisticuffs and phaser decuffs. Phaser cuffs. (laughs) And magnetic cuffs. This is really cool. And and actually, so last week I was talking about how with Leyland, he's kind of repairing himself on the fly. Oddly, even though through his leather outfit, and this time, it didn't seem like it was doing that. So maybe it was just a odd look of the CGI, or maybe there's something different going on here. But the whole fight scene was just constantly shooting him. He's still coming. It's like ah, right, I'm coming for you. Here's my, you know, they know the exact trope of like, everyone's fear is a needle near an eye, <laughs> and they keep doing yep. the season. Yes, they do. Uh, I think the the whole like continuous shots with a phaser i was waiting for the force field to show up like in uh like in the borg they've adapted kind of thing but uh, it didn't happen just seeing the 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 hits over and over again and then seeing the body knitting back together one thing that was unclear to me about the scene was when the nanites do finally like escape the body i was like did the body get fully vaporized what happened there that was very uh confusing to me as far as how it was shot well, she just blew a big hole through his chest, and then once the nanites came out, the potty just flopped face forward. Uh, that, I probably would have to rewatch that to kind of catch that, because to me, I was like, wait, where, how did what happened? One of the great things about Bree is that she watches every episode of Discovery twice before she comes on Transporter Locks. It's something I, I don't know how anybody else would find the time for, but we can always <laughs> count on her to get these details right. Well done. Anyway. <laughs> I was confused why Burnham didn't go for a headshot. That is a good question. Uh, it's not a zombie. It's not a zombie. I mean, it kind of is. Yeah. But like last week, we were concerned that Leland was wearing body armor that was somehow regenerating. If that's the case, then Gant clearly was not wearing any armor on his head. And also, I am uncertain to the degree that Control could manipulate him without a central nervous system. Oh, wait, he did say he had no nerve endings anymore. Yeah, like my my personal opinion is that these are... Uh, kind of like space zombies um, because they're kind of reanimated dead corpses. So uh, to me, like a headshot seems very appropriate (laughs) and a double tap at that. (laughs) Thankfully though, we did find out even if she had done that a moment later, they would have just come out and come after her anyway. Yeah. Instead of a burst of blood, a geyser from his head, we just see a geyser of nanites, which would be terrifying. Terrifying indeed. (laughs) Oh my God. So Spock, did he actually destroy the nanites or did he just like make them immobile? In the scene, he made them immobile. We don't know what happens. But yeah, it seemed like they made them immobile. Like he shot them underneath the force field once the grav plating was activated. Magnetism of the grav plating was activated. And they showed it underneath the force field. And we we didn't revisit that. And they didn't mention what's going on here. Yeah, and they just left the ship. We don't know where they left it. I thought they would have piloted it back to Discovery, but then we see them returning to Discovery in their shuttle. Yeah, that confused me too, because like, did they, like, it wasn't clear that they, did they land the shuttle on this ship? Did they uh, beam over? Uh, my, my, my instinct was like, wait a minute, 
the uh, Section 31 ship went to warp, the shuttle would still be back where they found the ship. So how did they get to their shuttle? I'm assuming that they must have landed the shuttle then. I don't know. What was your take on it? it? Clearly, it was not something that we were supposed to dwell on because they didn't show it at all. I, I had thought that they left the shuttle behind when they first showed, zoomed off and watching a second time didn't clarify that at all. Yeah, although it seems illogical, what I think they did was pilot the Section 31 ship back to the debris field, get back in their shuttle, and then from there, go back to Discovery, leaving the Section 31 ship just adrift. That, that makes sense. Yeah, that they didn't show it shows that it's irrelevant to the plot. Because <laughs> they're usually very specific about showing what they show for a reason this season. Although I wouldn't be surprised if I were Burnham and Spock. I would be suspicious that Gant had left some nanites behind on the shuttlecraft. I mean, anything is a potential vector for infection. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like, it, it wouldn't surprise me either if that Section 31 ship shows up in a future episode as a another vector for more more nanites as well. I wonder where the ship was taking them, because it had a destination in mind, and it wasn't Discovery, which is where all the sphere data is. Michael said she just st- like, she just stopped it, and Spock was like, don't you want to know where it was going to go? And she's like, she basically said, like, it doesn't matter. It was just part of a trap to get us here. But then later on, they're like, hold on, later on, toward the end of the episode, they're like, the signal or the ship was heading just outside of Starfleet space. So it did matter? Uh, it was a little weird. Yeah. And you would think that they would have been able to figure out where it was going without waiting for it to get there. Uh, Star Trek plots again. They can always tell where they're going until the plot needs them to be confused. <laughs> uh, it's true. Voyager happens and Deep Space Nine TNG happens. And sometimes they just don't know where they're going. It's weirdly weird. So convenient. <laughs> Very. It's, uh, it's unfortunate they don't have a Nava computer that has to calculate all of that stuff ahead of time before making the jump. <laughs> oh, what a great idea. I bet we'll see that in the next generation. <laughs> I'm sure. Very good. What else did you find noteworthy in this scene? The effects were fantastic. I'm just going to point that out. Yeah. Like, I love how these phaser hits look. They look just fantastic. Yes. I don't know. If, I can't think of another time where we saw a person in Star Trek shooting two guns like this. That's right. Oh, yeah. She was dual wielding. That was awesome. It was awesome. And, uh, you know, it, but if she had watched Mythbusters, she'd know that you have terrible aim if you have, have that kind of uh, <laughs> that kind of dual wielding going on. But since the nanites were just this amorphous cloud, I think it would, would have been hard to target anyway. And just any firepower in that general direction would have been helpful. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe she assumed that um, the nanites would be able to predict her aim if she was shooting just one. So the, like, the, the whole... Um, What's the word? Um, imprecision, I guess, of firing two would be like more accurate in in a kind of roundabout sort of way. Oh, sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> okay, there's one more quick thing. Control is getting very good at mimicking people. It's even showing emotion now and stuff like that to really, really, really get people confused and not know. It's getting really good at this. Yes, that's for sure. Which makes you wonder why it needed the sphere data in the first place. Because wasn't that the whole, the whole thing was what? To achieve consciousness and be able to emulate. Well, no, he wanted, or the control wanted, um, what's his face? The Section 31 guy. Um, Leland. Leland, yes. Wanted Leland for that reason. So strike my comment. Well, I, I think it's consistent with this plot to talk about the end of the episode where all the Section 31 ships start coming for them. It seems to me like control 
can take over any person and any ship it wants at this point in its evolution. And it makes me think that even if it doesn't get the sphere data, it's advanced enough already to wipe out the Federation. But also control may not have control of those ships directly, but it has said in the previous episode, it can control things enough where it tells people to do what it wants and they just follow. So we'll see next week, I guess, if all these ships do have crew complement, just doing their duty, or if it's control, completely controlling everything. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I'm, I'm also wondering why control had to eject the crew of that one ship when it apparently could have assimilated them. We don't know if it's assimilating just command crew or just the ship or if it finds it can't stretch itself too thin. Maybe it was a situation in which uh, the, the crew identified the uh, assimilated Gant as being control and tried to... Um, I mean, this is all assumption and like, you know, but maybe they all figured him out and then uh, tried to eject him and um, and then control managed to eject them. I mean, they did talk about it a little bit in, in the episode as far as what happened, but that could have been entirely made up by uh, controlled uh, Gantt. That's right. We don't know what happened except from a very dubious source. Exactly. We also don't know those other Section 31 ships that are all homing in on Discovery. We assume they're under control's control. We assume they're the bad guys. But what if next week it, the episode opens with all of them showing up? We're like, we heard about what happened with the other ship and we're here to help. Where are the cavalry? <laughs> I, I would be surprised at that, but uh, I guess we'll see. It does seem unlikely, but I have to wonder why, if the fate of all sentient life in the universe is hanging by a thread, why Discovery is the only Federation ship not in Section 31 that's fighting for the future. You would think that all other ships would drop their missions and focus on this overwhelming priority. Remember, control has control and can get anyone to do what it wants, even if it's not direct. Except Discovery, apparently. Actually, Discovery is intentionally keeping itself separate. They said that. I suppose, but you would think that maybe some other ships would be prioritized to this mission? I, I, I don't know. Control, control. You must learn control. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. What is it? Something, as Fox said in this episode, even, something like, I don't have the context to speculate or something like that. Context is for kings. And I also love the little line that sort of was like, there's 30 ships coming, almost their entire fleet. Talking about Section 31, like, oh, please have Section 31 have 31 ships for the dramatic flare. Uh, that would be awesome. <laughs> it's not including the ship that we saw Burnham and Spock on this week, so 30 plus one. Well, we, wait, wait, nothing said that ship wasn't going somewhere. I would hope that Spock and Burnham somehow left it disabled you rather than know. just, oh, this is a potential threat that could come back to haunt us later. I Let's leave it. Oh, They dropped it too, but we don't know. A little bit of, of fan theory here, but I'm assuming, because one of the things that people have been criticizing about this season has been like, oh, Section 31 is like uh, the, the worst kept secret in Starfleet. I'm assuming that this is going to be the end of Section 31, that whatever happens is going to end it. And uh, Section 31 will be considered non-existent in Starfleet after this. That is something I've uh, brought up on the show before. It's like, this seems to be like, a lot of people were saying like, ah, section 31, like you said. And uh, I'm like, well, this, I could, we don't know enough at that, whatever I brought it up early in the season, but it's totally plausible that this is the events, what causes it to go back into hiding. And so, yeah, uh, I think it's, I think it's showing, proving itself to be that much more and more every week until uh, Giorgio's series, which apparently 
means it still lives on. Yeah, we have to assume that Georgiou will be operating much more clandestinely because there's no way Section 31 can continue to operate this publicly and still be consistent with what we learn on DS9. Exactly. All right. Well, shall we talk about Pike's plot? (laughs) Pike's plot. I love it. Yes, please. Please. Let's talk about it. He's going down to Boreth to acquire a time crystal. And let's question that concept right off the bat, that the Klingons have an entire planet of time crystals and that this warrior race considers them too dangerous to use. Does that seem plausible? Yeah. It seems... I mean, my personal opinion is it was just like, well, that's that's certainly convenient. This seems not very Klingon-like. And uh, I was a little like, wait, really? <laughs> well, so so it's kind of sold as no one, no one in Klingon society believes these things are to be real. They're a myth. Uh, and this monastery is, actually knows the truth. Um, and so they're keeping it that way. So apparently... It, well, it made us seem like sometime in the past, sometime in the past, the Klingons were messing around with time and it got too dangerous to have so many people know that time travel is so easily possible, uh, relative. And so, yeah, I, I, they're not wrong. It just doesn't seem very Klingon to me. Uh, yeah, they're not wanted to show restraint. Klingons, uh, the warrior caste has taken over. Uh, Klingons were much more... Uh, as I mentioned on Enterprise, Kl- uh, Klingons uh, were much more about philosophy and science and whatever in the old days. And so by this era, even though the warring caste has taken over, they still re- reveal those stories as lore or fiction and and just history and not real. I mean, if they don't know it's real, I don't know. Klingon culture we see in in Star Trek is much different than it used to be, apparently. I would love to see more of that history then. that That would be really cool. Did I miss a tie-in where they said that the Klingons being the curators of the time crystals is where they get the homeworld's name of Kronos? He did say that. I'm like, they know Latin there, apparently? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I love it. I love it, too. It could be, I guess, the Earthling translation of it. Maybe. Because I think there were some early TOS episodes where they suggested that the Klingon homeworld was called Kling. Oh, yeah. It wasn't suggested. It was said. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Yeah, and I think they referred to uh, the Klingon language as Klingonese. Yeah, that was in um, the Trouble episode, Trouble of Troubles. Yes, exactly. That's right. And then they decided, that sounds ridiculous. We can't be afraid of a warrior race that comes from the planet Kling. <laughs> sounds like they came out of the dryer. <laughs> so, so I'm glad they changed that. So the whole timekeepers thing on Boreth, uh, you know, it actually felt more like a shtick from the Doctor Who universe than Star Trek to me. Yes, it, uh, I would agree. And the whole like, oh, he's now full grown. I was like, oh, well, interesting, but very Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah. And and then the whole, okay, the whole plot point here was that uh, if you take one of these time crystals, you're locked into that reality forever. And that totally goes against- It's a fixed point. Yeah. It's a fixed point. You're time locked, uh, Dr. Moore, Doctor Who terminology. But it goes against everything that has been said in this season, including this episode where the future hasn't been written yet. I was like, I can see what they're going for. And we know Captain Pike's uh, fate as viewers, but it doesn't seem to fit everything except, well, I guess it does in a way fit Dr. Burnham's interpretation of time, but not everyone else's interpretation of time, that time is, the future is yet to be written. What do the time crystals show to people who 
are going to die of old age with the, all their loved ones surrounding them. I mean, does the time crystal purposely change their timeline to be horrendous as a disincentive to take the time crystal? Didn't they talk about it as like there's a price involved? Yeah, so maybe that is the price. That's plausible, I guess. So the reason Pike ends up in a wheelchair is because he took the time crystal. And if he hadn't, he might have lived happily ever after. I guess. It's possible. Yeah. That's weird. That's weird. It's, it is. It still felt very Doctor Who timey-wimey that does not seem to fit with what we know in time travel in Star Trek overall. Yeah. So speaking of him winding up in a wheelchair, what do you think about the visions he had? Oh, my God. oh man. So uh, I just want to like point out, it was just so well acted. When, when he came out of that vision, mm-hmm. that look of horror and bringing his hand up to his eye, I was just like... Oh, wow. You captured that so brilliantly, Anson Mount. So brilliantly. Like, I felt it. Yeah. Just deep down. It was, just, it was so perfect. Uh, you know, something about the scene. I asked my roommates if he knew about Christopher Pike's history before watching this. And he didn't. He does not know about the whole everything that happened in the original series. And so I think it hit him, but not as hard as it does for someone who does know that history. Because he's like, oh, yeah, that was rough to watch. But I'm like, oh, you don't know, do you? And he's like, no, what? <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. You think that no, knowing Pike's fate going into this episode made that scene harder? I think so. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. Um, especially from the perspective of, like, we know it. Pike doesn't know it. And seeing Pike realize it, it was like... It was it was very wrenching, uh, even even to those who knew it. Like it was so like, oh, it just I don't know how else to put it. It just tugged at my heart quite a bit. And it showed this man is everything Starfleet has, like the ideal of Starfleet. He's like, no, I have to do this. I'm a Starfleet officer. I do this for compassion, life, uh, duty, and love. I have to do this. And he's and. And the next scene where he's back on the ship talking to Laurel and Ash, you could see he is very shaken and broken from what he's just in, just went through. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually going to go out on a limb here and say, well, this isn't out on a limb. I'm just going to say it. Pike is now my favorite captain. Yes. He is absolutely like the ideal, the epitome of what Starfleet is supposed to be. There's no question in my mind. He is He is the best captain. I walked away feeling similar. You could actually see this morning when I was tweeting out, because I was tweeting out some things about Star Trek, and I could see exactly where I was like, we had to add Pike to the common question of who is the best Star Trek or captain on Star Trek now. Are we ha- now, this is the same captain who couldn't get used to women being on the bridge. TOS. <laughs> TOS. 60s, yo. But, but you're saying that Pike is the best captain, not that Anson Mount is the best Pike. I mean, so I, that includes, okay, okay, that includes okay, sure. all visits. If you ignore this part, he is the best captain. <laughs> if you ignore the 60s-ism of him, this is the this is the best captain. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think this is the best iteration of Pike as well. Yeah. So you want to see a Pike spinoff? Yes, I wrote that even to my tweet. We need a spinoff for this. I will watch more Enterprise. <laughs> Can we talk about the the actual, like, this is the first time we actually see what happens to Pike that causes those injuries. Yeah. And what, one of the things that I really enjoyed about that was, like, there was kind of the, the whole, like, scene in engineering on whatever training ship he was in the future 
was very like looked like uh, some of the engineering scenes in TOS. Like they were kind of like that whole like big screen like of of like red glass in front of the warp core. Um, I thought that was a really cool callback, but uh, that horrific scene, it's the first time you see it. Uh, and it's the first time we've ever had that background and context for what happened. Yeah. It looks like it's just a, it seems like it was such a nonchalant thing that happened, a freak accident that happened. And oh, oh. Yeah, when they showed the explosion part of the vision, I thought we were seeing a flashback because Pike knew exactly what to do in that moment as if he had done it before. But then when they leap to the next part of the vision where he's alone in the corridor, the instant we hear that whirring sound before anything comes into view, I knew exactly what was going to happen. And I was like, my jaw dropped. Uh Yes, same. Um, That makeup, that makeup with uh, like the the skin melting off his face was one of the most horrific things i that's gonna last in my memory yeah, yeah I, I i saw that scene right before bed that night because my roommate was watching it right before i went to bed on thursday night and that was the last thing i saw before going to bed i was like oh god i'm gonna have nightmares now aren't i i did not i was hoping when we saw pike in the wheelchair the actor who played pike in the cage in the menagerie jeffrey hunter passed away back in the 60s but it was a different actor who played him in the wheelchair in tos and that was sean kenny who's still alive and i thought this would have been a great opportunity for a cameo if they brought back the same actor i would have had to put makeup on a very old man yeah they did put a lot of makeup and i'm not sure how much the base would have mattered when you're applying that much Actually, I watched uh, The Ready Room, uh, which came out, I think, on Friday uh, with Anton Mount. And he talked about that makeup and uh, the whole sequence of shooting uh, for the entire scene in the time crystal. And he talked about how much makeup they put on and how difficult it was to get into. It's the first time he's worn that much makeup. Uh, and and uh, he now has like a great appreciation for all of the like alien creature makeup people that do that every week. Um, But he said it was a very grueling experience that he very much appreciated doing once and he never wants to do it again. (laughs) There was something I had never thought of before. Uh, Someone pointed out on Reddit, like Spock has the exact same, almost the exact same fate as Pike. Oh yeah, he does. Also by choice. Wait, Spock, he goes back in time to stop a, Wait, what are you talking about? Uh, Star Trek Two, Wrath of Khan, training mission, radiation, he dies. Oh, that fate, yes. <laughs> See, I was thinking that Pike has almost the same fate as Wesley Crusher's dad. I don't remember how his dad died. Yeah. Oh, it was when Wesley Crusher was applying to Starfleet and you have to face your greatest fear. And they put him in a room where there were things exploding and people needed to be saved and he was dragging somebody out. And they were like, hey, that's exactly how your dad died. Oh, I don't remember that at all. Wow. Yeah, I don't remember that either. But don't take my word for it. <laughs> uh, uh, even in this scene in Discovery, we have a moment where Pike is holding his hand against the glass and someone holds it back to him. It's not as long and drawn out, but it happens here too. It's like, holy crap. Oh, this is hard. Like Spock's protege is he has dies the same or has yeah, dies the same way. <laughs> or has the same thing. It, it's interesting that you said like like he's been through this before he knew what to do. And he actually has seen it already, so he knows exactly what to do. Ooh, ooh, that's deep. See, wow. So he knows exactly what's coming. He knows 
what to do when he gets there. You, you might think that, kind of like the movie Frequency, he might try to change his fate. Like, he's seen it happen before and how it turns out. Maybe he'll try something different next time. Uh, and there, that's the Doctor Who part. It's like, everything we know in Star Trek is you can change your history. Uh, apparently, but not here. Apparently, he's time-locked now. You know, it, one of the things that was uh, talked about during the Ready Room uh, episode was that, like, this was... Uh, a choice he made but it was like he talked about how it wasn't actually a choice like he i recommend watching that uh that that whole ready room episode because it's like really revealing into how anton mount uh felt about this moment but like i think he in that moment knew that this was a decision he had made he knew it was coming this was what he was this was a a big part of uh owning up to his his decision and like really being pure to that decision, taking the time crystal. It's also impressive to me that of all the other visitors to the Temple of Time, he's the only one to have survived this ordeal because the son of Nun said, everyone who tries walks away broken. And I'm surprised that there hasn't been anybody else like Pike before. Well, and it also surprised me that like they just kind of let him do the thing like at, at the beginning of him beaming down onto that planet it seemed like they were just going to be like no get get the heck out like you're not allowed in here and then they're like yeah all right we'll walk you to the time crystals like seemed a little weird to me yeah they basically said oh you still want it okay here you go as long as you're sure <laughs> it did feel it did feel a bit weird but you know like here we have a part of klingon society that is not related to Klingon society at all. And if you happen to know, they actually have time crystals, I guess, because that's a very well-kept secret. They're like, okay, well, you came this far. Uh, <laughs> might as well. And I'm, I can whip tea on for you. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and somebody else pointed out that now that we've seen what a time crystal looks like, they've actually been in the opening sequence for every episode of Discovery since the beginning of the first season. Yeah, I saw your tweet about that. It, that like The assumption this whole time has been that they're dilithium crystals, but they are not. And so does that mean that ever since Discovery debuted, they've known this was coming? Uh, I, I doubt it. I can't believe that with how much season one has been like fixed or something like that. I feel like it was probably intended to be dilithium at first, and then like, oh, uh, that's not what it is. Looks like canonically, let's change it. Uh, it feels like that to me. I could be uh, retcon. Yeah, right. Maybe they were supposed to be dilithium, but then they're like, you know what? We don't actually know what dilithium looks like. Let's make it a time crystal. Uh, I think dilithium is purple. If I recall correctly, uh, have we seen it before? Yeah, they showed up like TOS. It was actually like quartz or something like that. And and they they do have it in uh, Star Trek Four when they have to recrystallize dilithium. You get to see inside the crystal chamber. And was it purple? I don't remember. I think it was almost reddish, but it was, it's they been a while since ship. I've seen. Yeah, so everything's well, red. Everything's red. Yeah, exactly. Let's put some red backlighting here. We'll get some accenting red up here. And <laughs> the fact that we have Klingons guarding these time crystals brings up one more thing that I noticed, which was it was Klingons trying to get a time crystal that resulted in the death of Michael Burnham's father and the loss of her mother. And which makes me wonder if the Klingons had a whole planet full of them all along, were these rogue Klingons that couldn't get them from Borath? So they were looking for an alternative source. That's a good question. They answered that. They said to the Klingons, to Klingon society, the time crystals are a myth. And so they would not know Borath has this. Borath is a sanctuary, supposed to be a religious sanctuary to Kalis, which they keep saying Kalish for some reason. But uh, 
it's a, it's a sanctuary to Kayla. So much like in Enterprise, we had a sanctuary that was actually hiding something secretly. I mean, so to everyone on the outside, this is just a sanctuary, a religious sanctuary. Like no one knows it's actually there to also protect time crystals. So that means that when Laurel and Ash sent their son there, they really thought it was just a temple for Kalish. Although uh, Laurel should have known better, being the Empress. Uh, yeah, she. Well, maybe she knew all along, or maybe she found out after becoming Empress or Chancellor. That's right. That's the correct word. I Chancellor. So. So Laurel pointed out to Tyler, she said, I know that you will always love Michael Burnham. And we saw Michael and Tyler being a little bit intimate this week, not, you know, making out because, oh my God, that pointy beard, right, Bree? Uh, <laughs> but at least, they, but they were being comfortable with each other and hugging each other. Oh, and I, I, I don't know that I want this relationship revisited because I, first of all, I don't know that they have that much chemistry. And second of all, he did try to kill her last season, and uh, they can make excuses for that, but I'm not sure it's really something that they should move fast. And plus, Ash Tyler is so boring. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I think he's that boring. Uh, I think he's definitely a conflicted character, and I think uh, his unique experience being Voke and Ash and that whole thing is... I mean, it makes for a very unique experience. So I, I mean, I, I can see forgiving the characters like whole past and, but, but I just, I don't know that I want to see that relationship fully revisited either. Quite frankly, I think the Ash Tyler character should move over to the section 31 spinoff. Oh no, don't put him on there. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, he's in section 31 now. So like yeah. if, uh, if he's going to be a series regular on discovery going forward and he's not supposed to be alive, he like, how is that? How is that going to play out? That's interesting to me. I, I, I'm with you there. I just don't want him to be anywhere near Georgia. <laughs> but they did even last episode kind of show them have a weird relationship with each other. Like you have to trust me. She said kind of thing. Cause they don't trust each other. Yeah. We also saw him make a dramatic recovery from being stabbed in the gut. Yeah. They, they didn't mention that at all. Just suddenly he is standing there at a meeting and he's fine. And it's, I would think that he would have at least been in sick bay for a little bit. They did mention uh, in the other and in the other part here of two people talking together, they mentioned it has weeks later since that incident. Well, okay. I suppose that's all right then. You know what? Uh, Ash Tyler's been kind of like, he's gotten his ass kicked in a couple of episodes now. Yeah, that's great. Back to back, like Leland. And then and then this stabbing control is really doing a number on, on him. I'm all for it. <laughs> Good thing he has that mutant healing factor. <laughs> right? She was. The other interaction, Bree, do you want to tell us about Culber and Reno? Oh my God. I tweeted out this morning, like, keep Jet Reno on Discovery. Keep Jet Reno on her. Yes. Yes. Uh, I love her so much. And it's such a crime that we haven't gotten more of her. Um, But, (laughs) uh, well, this is also what, even before the whole um, setting up um, a scene, they had a bit here where the crew is in the mess hall. Uh, the, a lot of the, um, you know, not the top officers are just sitting here enjoying themselves in the mess hall. I just love this. They're goofing around and having a talk. And uh, But Tignataro, Jet Reno, comes in and sees that Stamets is still having trouble um, seeing Hugh live his life without him. And Jet um, 
It's like, I thought we were over this. It's been weeks. <laughs> weeks. Like that's like, that's enough time to really recover from what happened between them. Yeah. But I, I got to kick out of, cause here we go. Ha, ha, here's jet trying to fix yet another problem. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's great. Yeah. And then uh, a little bit later, we show her coming into the sick bay after Paul was like being all rah, 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 life sucks correctly. Life sucks. I've got work to do. I can't focus. I can't be happy because we got to do a spore jump. And she's like, okay. (laughs) And he walks off. She goes to sick bay and is like, (laughs) she comes in here with her finger raised up. I need medical attention. (laughs) I got such a kick out of her. She's just a great character. Such a great character. But uh, this whole bit, she's like, I've got two. (laughs) This hurts like a bitch and it's currently one of two things impeding my work. (laughs) And (laughs) And she's like, yeah, uh, my, my other problem is an idiot. He came back from the dead and his name rhymes with poo. <laughs> <laughs> here we get to learn Jet uh, was married to a woman, an alien. Um, and, the, and here's where they kind of have this moment of agreeing that, um, or she's like, you know what? Relationships like ours are hard to come by, or, but we always seem to find each other. And she says, she says, people like us always seem to be, find people like them. The first time I watched this, I thought, she meant queer. Second time I watched this, I felt she meant, I don't know the proper wording, but like grounded people seem to find eccentric people. And she's, cause she's talking about her uh, wife was similar to Stamets in many ways. And so I took it both ways, two ways. And I thought, but, and she's trying to console Culber and say, Hey, try to work this out. Cause it's kind of rare. I thought it was a cool scene. You know, I think, I think I would have said it. If it's right for you, try, try to fix this. If it's something you need to do. But um, but either way, here we have our engineer trying to fix a problem. And I thought it was really well done. I really loved the scene. It was great. I kind of went off on a whole bunch of tangents there, but uh, I like this a lot. It's really like, I think the first time we've seen a character like, like Tignotaro's character on any sort of iteration of Star Trek. I really love how this character is portrayed and yeah, I, I love how also in the end, it's like, yeah, um, because like, I need to fix this because I need Stamets at his best. Uh, it's all about me, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> or it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we have to save the all sentient life or something. <laughs> exactly. It's like really putting it in context to Culber. It seems to me like Hugh Culber has recovered from his ordeal in a lot of other ways. I mean, he seems to be a fully functional medical doctor reinstated to duty on the ship. And in the mess hall, we saw him jovially interacting with his crewmates and not really looking at all Stamets's way, not seeming to mourn that at all, almost as if he's already completely moved on. I wonder why that is the one area of his life that he doesn't want to revisit is his relationship. Maybe it's too pers- too hard emotionally for him. Like I can understand that you know, having gone through breakups in the past where you just don't want to reconnect with the person. It could be something like that. It could be like just kind of like an unhealthy avoiding of the uh, the emotional interaction he's going to have to deal with and reconnecting with all of those feels. It could be any number of approach, like uh, of things going on in his head. Last week, we saw Paul tell him it may never be the right time. Maybe that was enough words for Hugh to start moving on. Maybe. It really sucks. I bet him Paul's shoes too. Uh, breaking up with someone who you work with <laughs> and having to be in the same 
area with them a lot. It's not easy. This is why I have a policy of not dating people I work with. Yeah, the first one is why I started that policy. The second one is I like I could give it a shot again <laughs> years later. Nope, didn't work out. I just have a policy of not dating people I work with dying and coming back to life. That's a very good policy. Very good policy. I'll have to keep that one in mind as a modification to mine. <laughs> <laughs> so far, it's worked great. I like it a lot. That's good. Uh, how many um, How many undead uh, have you had to deal with in your co-working situation? Uh, you know what? After the few years, you stop counting. Oh, oh fair enough. <laughs> I also want to point out that Wilson Cruz and Tig Notaro are themselves both gay actors, and I think it's great that we're seeing representation in this way. You know, it's it's not like we see Scarlett Johansson playing completely different races, which they should not be doing. You know, right. uh, we're actually seeing people being cast and representing who they are. And don't forget Anthony Rapp. Oh, of course. Yes, I'm sorry. You're right. Absolutely. I was thinking in that sick bay interaction, we saw these two characters and you're right. But Paul Stamets, of course, as well. Love it. Saturday earlier in the episode said they determined the spirit data cannot be removed from Discovery. And later on, they decided to blow up the ship. But part of me is like, uh, maybe this ties into the clip so short. And maybe. Yeah, I thought about that, too. So maybe, so in the clip so short, Discovery is hiding over a star. And I thought maybe that is either connected or maybe it's an alternate timeline where they tried that or they tried to hide Discovery. Because at some point they also mentioned that in that same scene, it's, I think as Michael says, it took a supernova to power that time crystal. Oh. Yeah, I, I immediately thought about that whole uh, that whole short with, with, with like, how long was it like a thousand years in the future uh-huh. or something like that? And like, I'm wondering if we'll see like, the uh, the sphere data somehow canceling the auto destruct sequence or something like that. You know that that is a very good point. That the ship. Well, first of all, you would think that they could just eject like the main computer somehow and destroy that without blowing up the entire ship. You'd think, but maybe that because I mean we know all these ships have core ejection systems, but for for like the warp core. But uh, I'm a, I'm guessing they probably don't have ejection systems for the computer core. Must not. But we are now seeing a future where the Discovery is abandoned because they all are planning on getting off the ship before it blows up. And the ship now has a time crystal. And so it seems like we're creating, as you said, the environment in which we see Calypso happen, which is really interesting. I think it's also worth pointing out the other Doctor Who connection of the whole, like the TARDIS is is powered by uh, uh, a star or like a black hole Mm -hmm. um, that, that is like in the TARDIS somewhere. And of course, this time crystal needs to be powered by a supernova. That's not a parallel at all. (laughs) No, of course not. Oh, But how are they going to keep Discovery away from control for a thousand years waiting for that supernova to power the time crystal? If it doesn't know, it's hiding there, I guess. Uh, We don't know what star it is over, except somewhere relatively near the Federation because of the war that the, was it the Dreyesh? Versus uh, the dude that was in the episode. Yeah. Well, we know for sure it's not like the the Amor- Amorosa star. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One down. Yep. Uh, Amorosa, 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 something like that. Amor- from yeah. Star, star Trek, star Trek uh, Generations. Yep. One thing that I'm disappointed by is they've been so focused on destroying the sphere data 
The only time we've seen them use it was to track Spock's shuttle. But there's all this information in the sphere data about artificial intelligence. Maybe they could use that to find out a way to destroy it or defeat it or even grow their own. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, they've been spending all that time trying to analyze the data. You'd think they'd have something in there about it. But of course, you know, it's not relevant to the plot. So of course, it's not actually included. Or when this is all said and done, we're going to go, oh, we're going to send this to um, a gentleman named Dr. Soon. <laughs> <laughs> Although I take it back. We did see them use the sphere to track the history of the Kelpian homeworld. Yes. But those are the only two times. Yeah, I forgot about that. But yes. Also, when we saw the red pulse in the sky this week, they said, oh, it couldn't have been Dr. Burnham because her time crystal is broken. How four-dimensional for them to be thinking that her leaps through time would be linear and that you know it could still be her? Yeah. You know, you, you need to think fourth-dimensionally. <laughs> yeah, I've got a real problem with that, Doc. <laughs> you know, it still kind of goes with my hypothesis that we're going to see uh, Zora from Calypso still. Maybe Discovery is somehow helping. Maybe. I got to think that plays a role somehow. And if I recall, this week was the fourth pulse, not that we actually saw it. I think there are seven total, which means there are three still to go, but only two more episodes. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really counted all of those. When when they said this is the fourth, I was like, really? There's only the fourth? I could have sworn we saw more. But I think that's maybe because I'm confusing the appearance of the Red Angel with the pulse. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, there was the Hiawatha, there was New Eden, there was the Kelpian homeworld, and I think that's it to date. And, and then this one. Uh, right, yes. So they're going to have to squeeze a lot into just two more episodes this season. Yeah, they will. So, Jessica, after this episode aired, you tweeted at me and said you were curious to know what we thought about the episode. Was there anything in particular that you were curious about? Well, it's largely what we've talked about already. Um, essentially, the, the thing that stood out as like the 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 key point in this episode was the 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 pike uh story and that reveal and i really wanted to know your thoughts on that and we've talked about it so yeah that was it cool well mission accomplished then indeed well in that case i think that brings us to the end of this episode of transporter lock we have two more episodes of discovery to go this season and we will be here with our reviews So, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us this week. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Save real. Until next time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. I guess this Gant is charting a new path. Oh. <laughs> yes. Ooh. Actually, sorry, not sorry. Enjoy that. <laughs> well, it's been lovely having you on the show, Jessica. All right. See ya.